The opinions expressed on this WebmasterRadio.fm program are those of the host, guests, and callers, and do not reflect those of the staff, management, or advertisers of WebmasterRadio.fm. Any rebroadcast or retransmission of this program without the express written consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly with the Internet Law Center here in Santa Monica, California. We've got a beautiful day here. We've got a fun day ahead of you here on Cyber Law and Business Report. Please be seated. We're going to have a good show for you today. And I want to thank everyone for the, the feedback we got in last week's show. It was a lot of fun, and I'm glad a lot of you enjoyed it. Um, today we have a very special guest, a man some of you, many of you may know, uh, um, a lawyer named Timothy Walton. He's been one of the most active lawyers in, in, the, spam, in the spam sector, um, but on the plaintiff side. So many of you may have first been introduced to him um, by a letter <laughs> it, it's saying, um, complaining about something your client or something you may have done. So, um, Timothy, are you with us? Yes. Good morning. T- Timothy, it's great to have you on. And, and you know, just for the listeners, uh, Timothy has been involved in many of the leading cases um, in terms of setting precedent in spam law. You're going back to, what, 2000 with FriendFinder, was that not? Yeah. Uh, that case was actually filed in 1999. And um, that ultimately went to a, a court of appeal in California and more or less upheld the, the right of states to regulate um, commercial email. Uh, it upheld the right of California, certainly, to regulate commercial email. Oh, California regulates the nation, right? <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, Timothy, um, how did you get into the area of spam? What, what attracted you to it, and why on the plaintiff side? Um, well, ultimately, it was because I had a client come to me um, who wanted to enforce California's law. And that was Mark Ferguson. Okay. Um, I had been interested in internet litigation for some time before that, um, but uh, he found me on the web and said, this is an opportunity to try to reduce the spam, which at that time in 1999 was a significant problem, nowhere near the problem that uh, it has become more recently, but uh, um, still something that he wanted to address. Now, did he come to you because you've been active in the issue or someone you knew? or No, uh, it was uh, purely because I had a website that said, I understand the Internet and I'm a lawyer. Okay, and those two worked well together. in 1999, <laughs> there weren't that many people who were Internet lawyers. And, and that would have been 1999? Yeah, that's very much, that's very true. Yeah. Uh, When I graduated law school in 1996, I had a website um, that I had built myself. And um, when I passed the bar, I immediately became one of the first 50 attorneys in the world to have a website. Wow. 
Yeah, I'm trying to remember when my firm first had a website, and I honestly couldn't tell you. Yeah, um, well. I remember uh, my, around that my time. My first website was addressed to Internet Privacy Law, and it was very popular because there were no other websites that addressed this issue. And uh, it actually got written up in uh, Computing Magazine as uh, one of the best websites of 1996. Really? Yeah. That's quite impressive. Now, um, what, was, what was the domain? Uh, well, at that time, it was um, uh, hosted by uh, somebody else. I didn't have a domain name because in those days, you had to own a server to have a domain name. And I didn't oh, I have see. a server. Uh, when I was able to register a domain name, um, I registered netaddy.com, which okay. I still own. Now, um, it's interesting that you, you, you being a, a groundbreaker in on the area of the web, you know, attorneys actually have been somewhat groundbreaking on the web on both a, a good, good and bad side, as we were talking about recently. And uh, in fact, one of the – it actually wasn't the first, but one of the um, – what it's often called the first spam was sent by a lawyer. Um, right, through, the um, green card spam. Yes. And um, tell us about that. Well, um, that was actually sent by two attorneys who were working together, and their aim was to generate business for their immigration law practice. And so they sent spams that suggested that they could – uh, get immigrants a valid green card for a flat fee. And that was um, through Usenet, right? Uh, originally, it was through Usenet, yes. And I think um, that was just recently, that was the, the 30th anniversary of that just came up. And um, although I think they, they got a very positive response from the spam initially. Um, uh, the 20th anniversary, <laughs> it, yeah. The response from the bar wasn't very favorable. Uh, no, uh, nor from the audience. Um, they received quite a number of complaints, and those complaints to their respective state bars ultimately led to um, those attorneys being disbarred for uh, other reasons where the spam itself was actually tangential. Oh, okay. I was thought it was associated with the spam. Now, uh, that um, was sort of a minor point in their disbarment. Now, one thing when you you got involved, first got involved in the issue of spam, would, would it fair, be fair to say that was a, it was somewhat of a highly charged issue among the internet community? I think that there were some people who uh, felt that it was a very important issue, um, but at that time the internet was really taking off. This was um, uh, th- sort of the peak of the internet dot com bubble. Uh, as it's called, and before that bubble burst. Um, so there were a number of people that, that thought it was extremely important, but they were not a majority of people. And the reason California I mentioned, was I remember being not at the, the first, FTC, but one of the um, first to have laws about in 2003. And you know, both sides, advocates on both sides were complaining of receiving death threats, which, you know, which is just an amazing um, thought since we're talking about spam. And and actually, a fight broke out at one point during the forum, and it's so it's something I haven't seen any other issue in the internet you know, develop such a response. Um, 
Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I, I remember uh, seeing uh, somebody from the government quoted as saying that uh, spam was so contentious that at some point somebody actually would be killed over wow. spam. But I, to my knowledge, that hasn't happened. Now, I imagine you, you haven't made a, a lot of friends in, in some areas because, because of being an advocate and a plaintiff's lawyer. Have you ever received death threats? No. Okay, that's good. That's good to hear. Um, so you, uh, have, I have you, received um, actual um, attempts to take down my website and to otherwise harm me. As oh, a DNS attacks and that type of thing. I'm sorry. A DNS attack. Yes, DNS attacks and uh, um, also a Joe job that was fairly significant. And for, for those unfamiliar, a Joe job is? A Joe job is where somebody sends out spam that appears to come from the advertiser, but in fact doesn't. And the point of it is to make the recipients of the spam angry at the advertiser, even though that advertiser didn't have anything to do with the sender. Okay. Um so the the next major case you you worked on it seemed to would have been the Gordon Ninth Circuit case. Now, am I skipping any major developments along the way? Uh, well, before I got involved with Gordon, I represented Infinite Monkeys. In a oh, that's of right. Cases. Yes, uh, a, a fascinating name. Um, what, explain to me what's the nature of that name? Uh, well, it goes back to the um, adage that if you have an infinite number of monkeys and an infinite number of typewriters that eventually they'll create all of the great works of Western literature. Um, and my client chose that name with the belief that if he could hook enough computers together, he would have the computing power to really do great things. And has that, has that theory borne out or no? Well, I think that theory has been borne out even if not by that particular person. <laughs> you know, I actually, as a side note, um, I, I actually saw The Monkees as in the, the, the 60s um, TV music band oh, um, right. a couple of weeks ago. And uh, it was kind of a funny, funny thought. You hadn't seen them since they were in the 20s and here's all these 60-year-old ladies still in love with Davy Jones. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so moving on, um, so you had a number of cases for Infinite Monkeys, did you not? Yes. And, um, about how many have you had? Um, I think that, uh, ultimately we filed between five and ten superior court cases. How many spam cases have you brought total as a plaintiff? Oh. Or, you know, plaintiff's um, lawyer. That's hard to say. Probably close to a hundred. And you know, up next to Infinite Monkeys, I guess would, would Balsam be your your biggest client? Um, yeah, that's probably true. And um, and then who was? What are your other major clients in the space? Um, in terms of, you know, if you had to divide up the, the three biggest in that a hundred chunk. You know, my experience with Infinite Monkeys um, was that it didn't make a lot of sense in the long run to have a single client that 
was bringing a lot of cases against a lot of defendants. One of the what? Infinite Monkeys cases had 30 defendants in it. I think I may have represented one of them. <laughs> yeah. And, and well, why why did you reach that conclusion? Well, uh, for a number of reasons. Um, the the problems inherent in that um, manifested through, for example, the the sheer number of paper that was generated. Um, and keeping up with that was a huge problem for me. Um, so I know that uh, in one of those cases, um, a lead defendant um, actually claimed in court to have spent over $100,000 in attorney's fees alone. And they had, this one defendant had 11 different attorneys representing them on the case. And taking on 11 attorneys myself against one defendant when there were also several other defendants in the case was a problem. And having all of these defendants working together against one plaintiff also created problems because um, it, it just became a David and Goliath sort of situation. Now what I do is I have a, a greater number of clients, each with specific cases against defendants. And One at a time. What I found is that um, it makes a, a lot more sense to have clients who are actually members of the state bar because they understand the law better, they understand how discovery works, um, it, it streamlines a lot of things. And so at this moment in time, probably more than half of my spam cases are on behalf of plaintiffs who are themselves attorneys. Interesting. Now, um, you know, I was actually, I remember one of those infinite monkey hearings and, um, in no pun intended, but it was somewhat of a zoo. Um, <laughs> you, um, you know, obviously you had your, your, your time to argue. And then, um, there was like 10 different lawyers, um, representing probably six different clients all arguing for time. And I think I got, um, I came at the tail end of a, of a 10 minute argument slot and I got like two and a half minutes to argue a, a motion and uh, it's it just it's not really how you you want things resolved, right? Um, and judges hate it. Yes, and then I think this judge was just about to retire, so his um, his patience had had gone months ago. <laughs> right, and I'm sitting alone at a council table, and at the other table there's ten attorneys. Right. I mean, there's the infinite monkeys. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, now, how, how have you found? This to be effective? Yes. Um, How so? In a number of ways. The, the most effective way that litigation has improved things is through my convincing defendants that they need to change their practices. And I have convinced a number of business owners that what they're doing is uh, both unprofitable for them and um, ultimately uh, unmarketable. And by making some 
even small changes, they can improve the way they come across to their potential customers. Um, another effective way that um, we have conducted litigation is when it comes to the worst of the worst, the people who simply won't um, change their practices to come into compliance with law, we've put them out of business. Such as? Uh, there was a company in uh, Colorado uh, named Trifecta that uh, um, simply gave up and said, we, we can't continue to litigate this, and if we're not allowed to send unlawful spam, then we, we can't have a business. So no daily double for them. Um, right. That's interesting. Now, um, now this is, you've also probably heard some of the criticism of uh, uh, some of your cases. Sure. And um, you know, and, and some, and one of the, I guess, the larger criticism is that it goes to the. the let me back up. It seems that you know, we had a big drop in, in the the volume of spam last year. When they got the one or two um, Russians with the bots um, who accounted for what, something like a third of all world's global spam, and that you know, what you're doing is, is is kind of at the at the fringes of of the the problem, and that you're not really going after the people who are at the heart of the problem, but you're going after le- the legitimate companies because they're the ones you can get. Whereas the the real spammers, you know, they're, they're going to either go out of business or um, you're not going to be able to serve them or sue them. Well, uh, you could say that they're the real spammers, um, but in my world, somebody who sends spam is a spammer. And every time that I have deposed somebody or talked to them on the phone or had written conversations, uh, they always deny that they're a spammer. Nobody has really come to me and said, yes, I send spam. I'm a spammer. Everybody denies it. They, uh, uh, in the words of, of Scott Richter on The Daily Show, uh, I'm not a spammer. I send um, uh, unsolicited email marketing. But No, it was something bulk. It had the word bulk in it. Yeah, well, um, but if you've seen that Daily Show segment, um, it's very amusing because uh, when it was turned around on him and he talked about anti-spammers, then uh, it didn't make any sense. And actually, for those who are unfamiliar with the segment, it, it would, would that would have aired at approximately what two thousand three, two thousand four. Yeah, about then. Right when the kind of the spam debate was was hot and heavy, and um, and I forget who on the Daily Show did the interview, but um, they really uh, they interviewed Scott Richter, who at the time you know, was known as you know one of the, the largest spammers and. Um, they, they really, they really made him look like a tool. Unfortunately for him, and uh, the funniest part was when he they got him to give out his email, and then he, after the fact, says, "Well, you're not going to you use that. You're not going to show that, are you?" And of course, they had it flashing on his forehead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I always wondered why he chose to do that. You know, it's always it's, that's an interesting thing about the Daily Show. You know, you think um, you, you think people would know better, but sometimes they don't. But Timothy, we're going to take a short break and we come back. We're going to talk more about some of the, the major cases Timothy's been on and what his view on where we should be going on spam after these messages. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. 
Hey, this is Danny Sullivan to talk to you about Bruce Clay Incorporated. They've made Inc. Magazine's list of growing private businesses and have exhibited and sponsored at my conferences since the very beginning. You've seen their search engine relationship chart or you've read their SEO code of ethics, seen other SEO experts, but did you know they can help you with PVC, web analytics, web design, marketing strategy, promotion, and branding? Yep, get everything you need for success in the online marketplace. You can check it out from the professionals at Bruce Clay Incorporated. For over 10 years with offices worldwide, they've got the answers you need. Check them out today at BruceClay.com. Two, one, booster ignition. Ascend into new heights of ranking and revenue with a search engine-friendly online shopping cart that's ready for liftoff. Introducing Ascender Cart. Ascender Cart optimizes your shopping cart with easy-to-use SEO tools that will help build keywords, titles, and tags for top search engine rankings. Get all of the advantages of having a shopping cart on your site and monitor your progress with regular reports in just a click. Prepare to launch your shopping cart to the top of the search engines with Ascender Cart. Learn more about what Ascender Cart can do for you at AscenderCart.com. A-S-C-E-N-D-E-R-C-A-R-T.com. Please hold while we connect you to one of the most sought-after experts in SEO, analytics, and web development. Hello, everyone. This is Vanessa Fox, and you are listening to the show to just answer any kind of questions that you might have, side issues or information about what happened on a particular Buffy episode, you know, whatever. Office Hours with Vanessa Fox, Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the Search Engine Optimization Channel, only on webmasterradio.fm. WebmasterRadio.fm, keeping you out of rush hour traffic. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And this is Bennett Kelly. We are back with Timothy Walton, and we're talking about um, Timothy's career and um, views and insights in anti-spam litigation. And um, so, Timothy, uh, one of your next major cases, and actually probably the most important case decided so far, I think, in the spam field, was the, the Gordon Ninth Circuit case. And um, what, do you, what, what, was, what was that like? And what, what was your reaction to the decision? Well, um, let me start by giving a little history of that. Um, because I did not represent the plaintiff in that case at trial. That was a Washington State case, and I'm not admitted in Washington State to practice law. Um, What happened was that uh, Gordon lost at trial, and then um, uh, his attorneys, for whatever reason, were not representing him on appeal, and he filed an opening brief with the Ninth Circuit that um, was not advancing his interests adequately, in my opinion. Yeah, when you use crayon, that kind of turns them off. (laughs) Yeah, so I I contacted him and I said, look, I I really think that you could use some help, and I want to help. Um, What happened so I substituted in as his counsel and responded to the opposition brief and then appeared at oral argument on his behalf. 
and the, the the major decision there was that um, what what some people refer to as faux, basically can, the Can Spam Act allows a private rate of action for ISPs, and the, the, the Ninth Circuit held that it really was meant to be the you know, bona fide ISPs, and that activists who had kind of set up what some had known as faux ISPs, you know, couldn't use um, that as a way to do an end run around. Um, can spam to 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 sued um, other than as permitted, which was for ISPs. Right. the The can spam the federal law has only ever allowed the um, government, state or federal, or ISPs to sue spammers, and doesn't allow standing to actual recipients. And so. One major issue in that case was whether Gordon actually operated an Internet service as a provider, as an ISP. And I think that even though we ultimately lost on appeal, um, it was something of a loser case, and my interest and my success was in limiting the damage to the plaintiff's side. Now, um you you have some thoughts about the 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 reach of the can spam act in terms of preempting state law and just for those who are unfamiliar um the history of the federal can spam act came in reaction to california actually passing a law that would have banned spam and um and given the way it was drafted it would have had a nationwide effect um but 84 days after california passed its law Congress came back and passed the Can Spam Act, which more or less says that you can spam, but you you have to um, it's going to be regulated. You're going to have to make certain disclosures. You're going to have to honor opt-out requests, and uh, that's kind of the the, the broad broad stroke. Uh, but an important part of it was the California law allowed for private right of action, you know, for individuals like you know, Timothy or his clients to to sue um, for damages for rece- receiving spam. And the Can Spam Act only allows uh, suits by, as Timothy mentioned, um, the federal government, um, including the Farm Credit Administration. Interestingly enough, there's a whole list of people who can sue. Um, the state attorney generals and uh, internet service providers who are adversely affected. And um, so you, in doing so, that it limited um, and more or less eliminated the California's um, laws, um, private right of action and – um, actually, the law itself, since clearly it was in, in conflict with the federal law for permitting spam as long as it was regulated. But you have a view that that might be unconstitutional. I do. Um, you know, I think part of the problem with you and I discussing these issues is that we both have a historical perspective that not everybody understands. Um, it's sure. been explained to me as inside baseball. When you have a level of expertise, then you can make certain assumptions that the general public is not able to see right away because of the expertise that's involved. So let me just um, back up and and sure, please give my historical perspective, which I'll admit is is biased in my favor, but um, <laughs> the, the way I see that happening is that. Um, after the Ferguson decision came down in 2002, 
which the which you argued, which I argued, and the California Appellate Court said, in essence, California may regulate internet email advertising. The California legislature then looked at that decision and said, if we're allowed to regulate internet email advertising, then let's really do it and not have this weak law that we've had on the books since 1997. And so in 2003, the California legislature passed a new law which provided for $1,000 per spam uh, damages for any spam sent to a California resident or from a California company. So you could say that that uh, affects um, everybody nationwide, but in reality, I don't think it would affect somebody in Florida sending spam to somebody in Virginia. But um, the result of that was that um, the Direct Marketing Association saw the implications for that that the spammer in Florida who wants to send email to somebody in Virginia would also probably be sending to somebody in California and have to modify their practices in that regard. The Direct Marketing Association started lobbying Congress to pass one of the seven bills which had been pending in Congress for many, many years um, and chose one in particular and got it passed. And that bill was the Can Spam Act. And Can Spam, the federal law, specifically provided that certain state laws would be preempted and others would not. Right. And so in response to that, the litigation that has evolved over the years since has made certain assumptions about that, such as that the California law um, with regards to advertising in general, the Consumers Legal Remedies Act, that doesn't mention email at all but just applies to all advertising, that's not affected by the federal Can-Spam Act. And uh, uh, there's a, a case... Um, uh, named Pottery Barn that says as much. Um, and then the assumption has also been that the California prohibition on uh, spam, which says that you, you can't send any unsolicited email advertising, that has been preempted. And then in the middle is the California regulation of unsolicited commercial email, which uh, says that the headers have to be truthful. And courts have come down on both sides of, of that so that it's something of a gray area, although I would argue that it's moving towards uh, not being preempted by federal law. What you're asking about is the absolute prohibition. When California prohibited the use of unsolicited email advertising to right. or from California residents and companies, the assumption has always been that that is preempted by can spam. But as far as I know, no court has ever 
made a public ruling in this regard. The um, initial attempts to get such a ruling were first in small claims court, where, as far as I know, every small claims court judge has decided that California's prohibition is not preempted by CAN-SPAM. And the next logical step is to try to take a case in superior court, get a ruling there, and then have it appealed to where an appellate court can publish an opinion stating whether California's Business and Professions Code 17529.2 is preempted by the federal CAN-SPAM Act or not. And but that is the effort that I'm making right now. The, the, the problem I think you would have there, Timothy, is that if you look at the legislative history, one, it, it, a lot of it, as you mentioned in, in your narrative, was that a lot of it was driven in re- specifically in response to the California bill. And mm-hmm. you look at some of the floor statements, you know, such as you know, the sponsor, Senator Wyden. And what we're saying is we don't want to ban it. We want to regulate it. And there were a lot of statements by you know, Senator Leahy um, from the Judiciary Committee um, and, and Hatch uh, from the Judiciary Committee that, and Sensibetter on the House side that you know, this is a First Amendment issue. We need to protect you know, the commercial speech right here. And um, so what we want to do is you know, impose certain regulatory structures, but we don't want to prohibit it. Well, I I don't think it is a First Amendment speech issue because it's commercial speech. And uh, the U.S. Supreme Court said as much in Virginia Pharmacy Board that uh, commercial speech is regulated at a different level than political speech or religious speech. True, Um, but it still is afforded certain First Amendment protections. Sure. I think that's what the Congress was saying. We we don't want to ban... And create an absolute ban on the use of unsolicited email. Well, I do want to create an absolute ban on the use of unsolicited email because it's unsolicited. It's an issue of privacy rights for me and property rights. If um, if an advertiser wants to come to your house and open your unlocked front door and spray paint a mural on your living room wall. I think that you would say that they should not be allowed to do that. Well, I have a personal computer. <laughs> it's my computer. It's my personal property. Why should an advertiser be allowed to write messages to my hard drive without my permission? Well, the same is true for direct mail you receive that comes into your door. Well, no, um, it's not the same because with direct mail – they're writing on their own piece of paper. They're using their own ink. And frankly, if, uh, if I were to follow up and wanted to eliminate all direct mail, I could file my address with the U.S. government and the post office would simply stop delivering direct mail advertising. Now, um, excuse me one second. Um, now, Jumping forward, um, we were talking earlier offline about your, your, um, your attempt at cyber cow tipping. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Now, that's a, you had a recent case involving two cows. Um, can you tell us about that? Two Cows is uh, a company in Canada that uh, um, started out as a software company, and after the um, monopoly by Internic on domain names was eliminated, then Two Cows became a domain name registrar. And um, Two Cows also created a domain name privacy service so that if somebody wanted to register a domain name, they would pay two cows as the registrar to make the domain name available on the Internet. And if they wanted to hide their contact information from the general public, um, then they could pay an additional fee and use the uh, who is privacy service uh, so that two cows would appear as the nominal registrant of the domain name rather than the person who's actually using the domain name. Under Were they the, the first to do that or was that another outfit? Uh, in, <clears throat> in most cases, for example, GoDaddy set up a separate company to do the um, privacy registration, which they call okay. domains by proxy, and those are two separate companies, and they have a contract between them, which is required by um, ICANN. But Two Cows didn't do that. Instead, Two Cows kept the Who Is service internal, so that it was really one company offering both functions. And this was essentially a loophole that they exploited in the ICANN registrar agreement. So when they signed the registrar agreement with ICANN to allow people to register domain names through them, they said that they would do certain things with outside companies, but because there was no consideration of whether they would have to do these things if they wore both hats, in essence, then they simply didn't. So when somebody registered a domain name with two cows and sent spam which was unlawful, and which was ruled unlawful by a federal court judge, um, Two Cows was the name on the account. And Two Cows argued that even though they were the name on the account, they were not responsible for the spam. They didn't send it. And they didn't have to reveal who was the person responsible because they had this privacy agreement and they fit into the loophole in the ICANN registrar agreement. And uh, so they ultimately um, won that case. Um, I consider that case, uh, Balsam v. Two Cows, to be the single most complex case I have ever litigated. 
And the result of that is that, as I understand it from people I've talked to at ICANN, ICANN is going to change those rules to not allow registrars to exploit that loophole. That that seems like that would be the proper response um, rather than yeah, having the courts. But um, we're going to take a break, and but when we come back, um, Timothy will tell us more about cow tipping and other fascinating Internet tales when we come back. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. MySEOTool.com is your all-in-one SEO management resource. MySEOTool.com makes it easy to optimize and oversee all of your SEO efforts. Line-by-line detailed reports help you identify any problems and show you how to fix them. MySEOTool.com is completely automated. Once you use it, you will see a rise in your search rankings and traffic. Try my SEO tool risk-free today. Go to myseotool.com. Myseotool.com. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. TopSEOs sends you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let TopSEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. On the road. On the boat. Working out. Or up in the air. Now you can listen to WebmasterRadio.fm on the go from anywhere. Look for WebmasterRadio.fm on TuneIn. Available for download on your iPhone, iPad, BlackBerry, Android, Palm, Samsung, and Windows Phone. As well as Google TV, Yahoo TV, and Roku. Tune in to WebmasterRadio.fm on the go from anywhere by downloading TuneIn right now. WebmasterRadio.fm. We really are everywhere. WebmasterRadio.fm, the destination for education and entertainment. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back. This is Bennett Kelly, and we're talking with Timothy Walton, um, renowned internet litigator and uh, plaintiff's lawyer. Um, before we get back to the uh, cyber cow-, cow tipping, as we've been calling it, you know, Timothy actually is a musician. He plays in a rock band, so he might appreciate the fact that t- today is the 52nd anniversary of the release of the groundbreaking um, album by Miles Davis, Kind of Blue. So today is a very good day for Feeling Blue. Um, if you haven't ever heard um, the album, please check it out. It's a, it was definitely one of the best jazz albums of, of all time. and Maybe um, the best. Yes, and it's ageless. One of my favorites, I mean, for sure. It, uh, it's sad that Miles, Miles didn't last as long, but um, it, it is just a, an amazing album. It is in any event, <laughs> back to cyber law. Um, now, Timothy, um, 
it, it does seem like that it's a complex issue for the courts to resolve on the whole two cows issue, and that that really the, the easiest remedy would be through ICANN, although ICANN isn't exactly the um, isn't exactly um, something that can be moved rapidly. Yeah, I'm not sure that's the easiest way uh, because ICANN doesn't move rapidly. Um, I think that uh, the the court had an opportunity to correct uh, an error that ICANN made, and it chose not to, which um, uh, a lot of people would say was the right thing and would have uh, been an activist court if it had tried to close that loophole um, that two cows exploited. I think that one of the the huge problems here is that um, two cows wouldn't respond to subpoenas. Um, they wanted to have it both ways, and they ultimately got to have it both ways. They protected the actual bad actor and uh, didn't have any of the liability that ICANN said that a registrar should have if they protect a bad actor. Now, um, you, I'm, spam litigation is going to be continuing for a number of years, but what do you see in the horizon as, as some of the future battle areas? Do you think it's going to be you know, behavioral targeting, um, privacy issues? Um, I, I think that there are two aspects that are going to continue to be litigated in the short term. One is that as... Um, uh, small businesses get involved and see the potential for easy profits that they're going to enter the space and make mistakes. And uh, by sending out a million emails, um, that increases the likelihood that one of those or more than one will reach people who have a better understanding of the law and go to court to uh, litigate. The other... Um, obvious aspect is the the more gray area questions, which is where the law hasn't caught up with technology and the senders are using means that may be quasi-legal and the recipients are arguing that they should be illegal and the courts have to decide where those particular factual uh, circumstances fall on which side of the law. Now, um, I don't know if you've been looking at the chat room, Timothy, but there's a, there's a request for you that you may want to consider. Now, um, now, what what about the issues of, for example, the uh, this, there's increased efforts to regulate privacy. Um, there's a number of bills pending in Congress, and do you see that as a, as a hot area of litigation? Assuming um, Congress ever does pass anything, you know, I. I can't imagine that this is a high priority for Congress. It seems like Congress has a lot of other things to consider. And uh, um, there's a lot of disagreement about uh, uh, how Congress should be spending America's money. Um, the the spam you issue, <laughs> to me, doesn't seem like it's going to rank high enough to get their attention. Although the flip side is that what people say is that um, internet issues are one of the few areas where 
there is, can, there is often bipartisan agreement. And so this is actually the, the fallback um, for – gives them something to actually pass and say we got something done um, while they were bickering over everything else. That's yeah, the theory. I don't I, know if I agree with it. I, I'm I'm not sure that uh, that this is one of those areas that that uh, um, people are are going to come together on because um, businesses tend to like the Can Spam Act because it uh, reduces their risk of exposure and recipients are beginning more and more to see spam as just uh, part of the internet experience and accept it and not um, lobby their congressman to try to change it because it it sort of feels futile. It is like the the Monty Python skit where you cannot get the spammers to shut up, and uh, the the lumberjacks come in and start singing spam 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 spam, and you can't get them to shut up. And what do they what do they what do they say in that skit to try to get her to shut up? Uh, what they say in that skit eventually is, uh, um, uh, uh, "I'll take your spam. I love it." <laughs> For those of you listening, but not on the chat room, there's been a a, a a lot of discussion trying to bait Timothy into mimicking the Monty Python. I don't like spam. And um but he uh he was a good sport to at least do the first half. <laughs> and, uh, so um what's next for you Timothy? What 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 would you like your, the, the viewers to hear about what what you've been up to? Well, um a fair part of my practice is um advising internet companies on how to reduce their exposure to litigation, uh, not just relating to spam, but um, other areas as well. And I don't think that anyone can eliminate the risk of a lawsuit. Um, as you well know, anybody with 50 bucks can go file a lawsuit. Um, right. They don't even have to have a good case. So you can't ever say, well, I'm lawsuit proof because um, somebody with a bad case can still file a lawsuit. But there are things you can do to reduce that risk, and that is how I help my clients um, both through uh, the terms of service and policies that they put on their websites um, when they're advertising online and through other business practices. And if somebody does want to send unsolicited email advertising, there are ways to do it that will reduce the risk, if not eliminate it altogether. Now, now so Timothy, you, one, you've one been in a lot way, of cases to be that have gone on, uh, up on appeal. And in California, there are certain specialties where you're actually – only a handful of one where you're able to call yourself an expert. A specialist, and this, right. And, and one of them is, is a pellet expert, right? Uh, an appellate specialty is one of those areas, yes. And, and you're close to getting that designation, are you not? Uh, I don't know how close I am. Um, I, I do a fair amount of appellate work. 
Um, <clears throat> you have to have a certain number of cases, and then you have to take a test. And I have not yet qualified to take the test. Okay. Um, but, you know, I've, I've having litigated against Timothy. He's a, um, he is a definite passionate advocate for the cause, but also a fair attorney. And, um, Thank you. so it's been, it's been great having you on the show, Timothy. And, uh, um, if people want to look you up, where should they look you up? Um, I have a number of websites. Uh, one that is easy to find is at timothywalton.com. Okay. My phone number is 831-685-9800. And what's the name of your band? articles at a website that is netatty.com, N-E-T-A-T-T-Y.com. Great. Well, Timothy, thank you for joining us. I'm going to cover a couple um, wrap-up things, but it's been a pleasure having you, and I hope you'll consider joining us again. Everyone, that was Timothy Walton, uh, one of the leading um, Internet lawyers in, in America, particularly when it comes to spam litigation. And um, next week, we're going to have an interesting show. Uh, there's a, a growing area of dealing with the matter of cyber insurance. Now, a lot of people um, haven't really considered uh, insurance in this space because it's been prohibitively expensive. And the reason why it's been prohibitively expensive is insurance is based on histories. You know, and so given that the Internet was brand new several years ago, there were no histories. And so they priced it as, as, as astronomically as they could just to protect themselves. Well, now the Internet is you know, it's over a decade old, and they have some histories to work from. And so – there's a number of products that are starting to be developed by some specialty brokers um, to try to address and protect online businesses. And so if you're not insured right now, you might want to join us next week and find out whether or not this might be an option for you. So it's always been a pleasure having you and um, hope you will join us in the future. Listen to us on um, Webmaster Radio and you can download us um, through iTunes. And if you have any questions, please just contact us. And let us know if there are topics you'd like to have us cover. We're always welcome. Um, I, this is Bennett Kelly, the Internet Law Center. And I can be reached through internetlawcenter.net or B. Kelly, and that's K-E-L-L-E-Y, at internetlawcenter.net. So it's been a pleasure having you. I'm Bennett Kelly here from our um, media center here in sunny Southern California. Wishing you all a great weekend and have a very blue day.